Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, 60% of the seeds that are legally allowed to be traded worldwide are owned by four companies, which are doing bad, bad stuff to the soil. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, your host, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. This podcast is the place to be for anything to do with nutritional medicine and how we can use both food and the way we live to prevent and manage ill health, as well as maintaining your optimal well-being. My guest today is Karen O'Donoghue, the founder of the Happy Tummy Company, which she established in Hackney, East London, back in early 2014. I've known Karen for a number of years. She is an absolute breath of fresh air when it comes to the wellness industry. She doesn't talk any doo-doo and she doesn't hold back either. And that's why I really wanted her to, to jump on the pod. She actually suffered from chronic IBS uh, symptoms since childhood that was constipation predominant. We talk a a lot about that in the podcast actually and how she, after looking at um, research articles, found out about the microbiota and how important gut bacteria is to uh, general being but particularly for IBS and using what has now been uh, described as the magic poo bread uh, was able to rid herself of the IBS symptoms Um, and she started sharing the bread recipes and then actually supplying it and has helped thousands of people uh, get more connected with their bodies as well as improve their IBS symptoms and she has a personal mission which is to eradicate the world of IBS. She is an activist for fibre, for real bread, and now she's moved to East Sussex where she's opened a bakery school in the countryside, surrounded by farmland, herds of cattle and sheep. It is really idyllic and I can't wait to go and visit her, which I 100% will. If you want to see the recipe that I made for Karen on the podcast, just jump on to The Doctor's Kitchen on YouTube. I made her this delicious Iranian-style stew with beans and pomegranate molasses, fresh pomegranate, rose uh, petals it gives a lovely perfume to it i think you're going to really love this uh, recipe it was super easy to to make and um, the reason why i made uh, a stew is because i wanted to 
dip her wonderful toasted bread uh, in it and honestly it was just an amazing experience go check it out you can see how to uh, make her bread on her website as well um, we talk about a lot of different topics on this podcast uh, her journey the importance of seed banks um, and maintaining an open and respectful perspective on different types of farming methods as well um, she is is really uh, like I said a breath of fresh air because she has certain views on organic farming that I think will become a lot more popular as we gain a lot more evidence about the need for um, uh, proper crop rotation I learned a lot on this podcast actually about the importance of soil because if we are interested in human nutrition then we should also be interested in the quality of the plants that we create and thus we need to be interested in the health of our soil the soil biome which is a living breathing thing it is the medium by which we are able to create these incredible products that have all the different chemicals as well as minerals and vitamins and without healthy soils we cannot create uh, healthy foods for for humans to consume and prevent ill health remember you can check out the recipe i made uh, over on youtube and all this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com and whilst you're there subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes for now i'm going to stop talking and we're going to get on with the podcast Karen, thank you so much for coming to the kitchen all the way from Sussex. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> all right, we're going to get into it. I'm going to. I've I've made this meal because I want to try your delicious bread with it. Uh, it's a simple stew. Um, it's going to be some cannellini beans, uh, but you could use chickpea or red kidney bean, whatever beans you want. Um, we're going to go in with some passatas, just same plain passata, some barberries, which you can get from most supermarkets these days. It's like this tart berry. Um, I love it. I love barberry. Yeah, yeah I those. love one. Thanks. It's kind of like a, the anti goji berry. It's like, <laughs> it's tart. It's lemony. It's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> um, rose petals uh, for some sweetness and some pomegranate molasses as well. We're going to get cracking with that. I'm also going to um, add some coriander seeds, some cumin seeds to this pan, and everything's going to go in one pan. It's going to be super I love easy. a one pan dish. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the whole reason is because we want to try your delicious bread and stuff. So yeah. Thanks for coming down, like I said. Very, very welcome. Very, uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, we've known Big each other. You. Oh. Yeah, so actually I was thinking <laughs> about this, right? So we met three years ago on February the 5th at a Fair Healthy yes. thing. And you were there supporting um, Dr. Hazel. Yes. Um, and I was on a panel with Hazel at the time talking about grains. Yeah. Um, and I remember actually, so yeah, that was three years ago. And I remember being on that panel talking about crop rotation and everyone in the audience was just like, <laughs> like mind blown. And I'm just like, I feel like this is a normal, you know, this is like a normal sentence within yeah, the subject. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, at that time anyway, certainly farming and horticulture and like the growing of our food felt quite distant from the yes. eating of the actual food. Um, and yeah, maybe I miscalculated that at the time, but I feel like now when you talk about crop rotation, it, um, yeah, it means a lot more to people. On, honestly, that day, you, I mean, like, I don't think you, you ever don't speak from the heart, but you certainly were the most impressive in, in terms of, like, the people that I saw on the stage um, that day. And it's just because you're being so genuine about everything. Like, yeah. everyone else is kind of like, you know, 
dancing around the subject, but you were just like, no, this is what we need to learn. We need to learn about our culture and how we actually need to grow things and what the importance of the soil is and mm -hmm. grains and, you know, a massive champion for bread. I was like, finally, in this gluten-free world of restriction that's religiously focused on carbohydrate restriction, yeah. you were championing, you know, mm -hmm. something that has been responsible for the the mass globalization of our human race mm -hmm. you know bread essentially yeah, 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 yeah. so and i was just like yeah that's great like I and that, i think i reached out to you after that yeah yeah and i remember yeah meeting you afterwards and just been like oh my god this guy is so energetic and like <laughs> and yeah then when i learned more about your culinary medicine and everything you were doing i was just like oh this is so amazing because um i mean yeah so my sister is a gp and like you know i hear all of her stories and i hear about people coming into her and like, you know, she's just telling them to like eat a better diet, like do not smoke, get exercise, like da la la la. Um, and then meeting you and you kind of aligning the two so well and so eloquently and so progressively, if I'm honest, it was just like, ah, oh, there's hope for the world. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you um, moved out of um, central London, like- In July. In July, yeah. yeah. July of this year. How's that transition been for you? Um, so, um, Okay, so one of the things is I've actually moved to a place where the soil is clay, mm -hmm. so it's actually really difficult to grow food. <laughs> and so I wasn't as aware of that movie as I should have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so to grow food where I live, you actually have to like use loads of compost. Wow. You know, you're kind of building up the soil as opposed to digging down, right, right. which actually kind of goes against the way I think about food. So I want to dig down and that's what I'm used to. You know, I grew up in Cork in Ireland where my parents ran a horticulture company, my father still runs it. Um, and every Easter we used to plant thousands and thousands of saplings. So for me to like now work on building up the soil and then dig into that pretty loosely feels a little bit um, unintuitive. Um, but outside of me having horticulture challenges, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really, really, really amazing. It's been really amazing to get um, a lot more perspective on uh, what a friend of mine coins weather weirding um so that's been quite interesting weather so instead of ta talking about climate change because he's like well the climate is actually still the same mm -hmm. he's calling it weather weirding uh -huh. which i quite like because it explain you know we get like these like horrendous bouts of rain in sussex yeah. we get horrendous bouts of flooding and it's like ah is this this is weather weirding right yeah. so it's just i don't know it's just like it it makes the topic of climate change a bit more uh community-based and something we can kind of solve uh -huh. from the ground up as opposed to like you know all like the countries around the world are going to come together and like solve climate change like that's not going to solve climate yeah. change climate yeah, yeah. change will be solved through like better farming and you know better purchasing from kind of communities um, and bringing things um, more local again so this combination of like small changes community action that grows from the yeah. soil up to pardon the pun is definitely the way in your mind that you think 100 yeah. percent. i'm so convinced of that so um i guess up until now and i feel like we are in a changing time up until now and certainly post world war ii um let's take britain for example because mm. here we are in britain so um in the 1970s uh when britain became part of the eec um we kind of had to get on board with this i suppose european community of trade so because of that, um, farmers that were farming wheat, for example, had to register the seed that they were growing um, on this national list, um, and then they were legally allowed to grow the seed. So 
basically overnight, uh, we kind of went from farming thousands and thousands and thousands of varieties of loads of crops, uh, pretty much organically, to a really, really, really small selective group of crops. Um, and uh, these crops, um, because obviously during the war we lost millions of people, um, the way to farm was like um, yield is everything. So we are going to farm for yield. Yield at any cost was kind of the motto of the government. Um, and that's fair enough because people, you know, people were dying of starvation. You know, we had lost a lot of people. So yield at any cost made sense at the time. Um, but yield at any cost meant, OK, well, we are dependent on, you know, the yield now being twofold, fourfold. Like if we don't get enough wheat, like our people are going to die. Um, and the only way the government saw fit to, uh, I guess, ensure this was to create herbicides and pesticides and all that kind of stuff to ensure um, a crop would grow to a certain height. It was easy to manage. It was easy to harvest. Um, and that, you know, I guess uniformity was kind of key to farming then. Um, and, and whilst that was good for feeding people and, and we got Britain to a point where, you know, we were nourished again, well, we were certainly fed, we maybe weren't as nourished as we could be. Um, I feel like then the government should have probably said, OK, we've done what we've achieved. We've like fed people, you know, we're, we're in a good stock of food now. So now actually let's go back to looking at the soil health and, and making sure that we, you know, we save back seeds that are, you know, drought resistant or really vigorous and all these kind of things. But what happened was at that point, you know, corporates came in, they were privatizing seed banks, they were buying seed banks from government. Um, and, and, and really, really sadly, what happened was, you know, kind of commercial entities started cross-pollinating. Let's take a tomato plant, for example, because we're using Passata today. So uh, one tomato is drought resistant and one tomato is highly vigorous. Um, and, and as a company, I want a drought resistant, highly vigorous plant. So I cross pollinate those. Um, so those are two kind of heritage seeds. You know, they've come from heirloom varieties that have been in, in, in that particular microclimate for you know, hundreds of years. Um, and, and now I've made a hybrid seed. But unfortunately, with hybrid seeds, a lot of the time those hybrid seeds will never produce another seed. So you've kind of just got like this, like this man-made way of like making food. Um, and then secondary to that, um, fertilizing and kind of inbreeding inbreeding kind of seeds to, to kind of get all these like seven boxes or whatever it is ticked meant that we also bred the root out of the plant so this is like what like what have we done this is nuts right so what we've done is we've created um you know tomato plants wheat plants oat plants uh, to have really, really, really short roots, whereby the straw is really short because we want the machinery just to be able to like shave off the heads. Really, really, really short roots. So where is the nourishment going to come from? Um, and, and this, this straw that's above the soil, that's almost the same height as all the weeds as well. So we, we need like herbicides, pesticides to get rid of the weeds because we, we don't have a wheat anymore that rises above the weeds. So, okay, so we've got wheat now at the same size as all the weeds, but now we've got a root that like can search for nitrogen, can search for water. Um, so this is really, really, really bad. Um, so now kind of what's happening is social mobilization among small communities, you know, have been petitioning government um, and have been like, you know, going against the legislation saying, hey, we want to grow um, wheat that goes way, way above the weeds so that the weeds can stay there. Like the weeds are fine yeah. um, and they'll just be crunched down and, you, and you, harvest you back into the low. soil. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then also um, we want our roots to go into the ground again. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be feeding them. Like we just want the soil to feed them. So 
you would have a root that would be maybe four meters deep into the soil and and then it had like fungi that like underneath that that root that also like grew even deeper so all these natural structures that were allowing you know just plant and the rotation of crop to like function very very well and sustainably was just eradicated overnight um, and the system post world war ii to feed people never changed so here we are in 2020 and we are well 60 percent of the seeds that are legally allowed to be traded worldwide are owned by four companies which are doing bad bad stuff to the soil um the other 40%, it's kind of, you know, a variety of small companies. Um, but excitingly, within that 40%, you know, there are lots of peasant farming across, like, South America in particular, where social mobilisation really took off to kind of, like, you know, bring back all these heirlooms and stuff. But um, what's happening now is social mobilisation is kind of taking off again because climate change has become such, like, a worry. Yeah. Um, and now, um, since 2008 in the UK, you are allowed to market and produce heritage seeds again, but you have to be fair certified and you have to have money to be able to pay to be the owner of the seed and kind of the safeguard of the seed. And you have to have lots of space because seeds, in order for them to stay alive and in order for them to kind of um, uh, get used to the climate we live in now and, and, and the drought or, or whatever whatever new pests are in our world now versus back in the 1970s. Um, you have to just keep planting them, you know what I mean? Like they can't sit in seed banks because most of the seeds that are currently in seed banks, if, they, if they're if they grown in the soil now, chances of them germinating yeah. aren't like, you know, yeah. it's not a guarantee. You've got to use them, otherwise they won't, they won't be physically adapted to the current environment Absolutely. that is constantly changing at the moment. Yeah. So that's super interesting because I think even for myself, who's massively into food, massively into nutrition, I really lack an education on the importance of soil and the importance of farming mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is, you know, we've got a system that prioritizes yield at any me by any means necessary. Exactly. And we have uh, the types of pro crops that are grown um, from, yes, a corporate standpoint, but one that isn't adapted to the changing soil environment yeah. that doesn't adequately absorb nutrients deep enough from the soil and therefore becomes more reliant on other chemical per, uh, pesticides and fertilizers and, and um, herbicides to actually allow them to grow in a, in a nutrient depleted Absolutely. soil. And then what you also have is, so because we've got like a short list of crops that we can grow, um, you are, when it comes to harvest and let's say, um, let's say you're farming for the bread um, industry. So you've got a wheat that's specifically for milling. So you harvest the grain, you send it to the miller, the miller mills it, it sends it off to whatever bakery in Sussex, um, and then I make bread with it. But the only thing about that is I'm baking with just one variety of wheat. Whereas back in the day, like pre-World War One, uh, the way to farm was land races. So land races is basically growing heirloom varieties um, across your field. Um, and there could be like six, seven, ten varieties. There could be 30 varieties. So you were growing, you know, legumes, you were growing wheat, you were growing barley, you were growing oats. And then all of that was being sent off to the miller, milling it down. So when I made you a loaf of bread, you were eating like loads and loads and loads of stuff there as opposed to just four ingredients. Yeah. Um, so for me, that 
you know, when I started learning about all this, this was what excited me. And this was what um, kind of informed my decision around how I'm going to make bread for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's even evolving, you know, since I first started Happy Tummy Co. And for me, meeting farmers now who are registered with fair and they're growing heritage varieties and, and some of them are growing 30 varieties in a field um, and, and some of these farmers have sourced um, seeds that are like 10,000 years like this wow. guy John Letts he's a farmer in Oxfordshire and he went to Egypt and he got these seeds that have been like buried with Tutankhamun <laughs> and like we were at this event the other night and he like showed me the seed this like black seed and I was like oh my god John that's amazing and like everyone was like my best friend was with me she's a psychotherapist she was like what's going on here like am I missing something I'm like mate like this is amazing yeah. and like he had in this little test tube and he was really careful like to yeah, mind it all yeah, night you know because yeah. this is precious like this you know it, we can feel so unconnected with our past but then when you see this yeah. in a test tube and you're like mate this is our past yeah. and i can ingest our past yeah. like yeah. how cool is that yeah. that's amazing and it? i think yeah and i think like a lot of the farmers now that are farming heritage wheats you know they are so happy that there are bakers out there like me that are just geeking out on this because mm-hmm. um you know bakers that are going to bake this bread for people where you know <sighs> When you come into a bakery every morning at 3 a.m. in the morning, you're really, really tired. It can be, it can get a little bit monotonous. You know, you're shaping the bread, you're stretching, la 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 la. Um, and you, you want to work with stuff that stimulates you and makes you more interested. And, and heritage grains um, do this for you. You know, they, they influence you, how you make things. You have to readjust the pH of the water. You have to readjust temperatures, fermentation times. You know, so you're constantly being stimulated. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, being a baker or, or like being any type of uh, food maker or producer is such a wonderful thing to do, you know, forevermore. Like you've made your mark in the world in a lovely way, unless you're using like, the pesticide herbicide. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if it, like I, I kind of separate makers into like there's those who nourish and there are those who feed. And I've always wanted to nourish. Yeah. Um, and I think this wave of farmers that's kind of coming to the foreground now um, are really singing off the same hymn sheet and it's um it's a wonderful wonderful time and that's a great segue into how you're about to nourish us with some of great. your bread amazing uh, i've got a pan here that's okay, on a uh, um, hot um, okay. dry heat great uh, and i know your bread i've had it many times so this one you have not had oh okay yeah, great this is a new one. oh fab. i was like i'm not gonna bring them an old bread <laughs> let me get you a knife um so talk us through it okay amazing so I'll wow just put these over fantastic. here okay i'm just gonna take this one out of its paper i don't have a bread knife oh i should have brought one don't worry <laughs> it's all right um okay cool. tell us about it so uh this is a organic i've got hair in my mouth um so this is an organic stone ground um heritage wheat loaf which also has got some rye in it. Um, And the reason I put rye in this loaf is because um, uh, the farmer who farms this rye uh, just completed a study with the EU, uh, which kind of has indicated that the antioxidant um, contents of rye are off the scale. Um, And so I guess, yeah, I just want to incorporate a bit of rye into all my recipes now for that reason. Honestly, rye is like one of my favorite ingredients right now. I remember looking it up. uh, I, I think it was like last year when I was writing the second book, uh, okay. E2B Illness, and like you said, it's off the charts in terms of yeah. antioxidant profile. There's got some, there's some prebiotics as well that actually have been shown to nurture um, certain types of microbes in your gut microbiota as well. And and that's why pumpernickel is like just so so yeah. incredible for you. Yeah. Um, so I'm so glad you put right yeah. now. I love the flavor as well. Amazing. It's amazing. So in this, uh, 
all the grain for this bread was grown in Northumberland, um, <clears throat> quite far north, quite wet. Um, so uh, the farming of these grains is adapted to the weather as it should be. Um, so what Andrew, the farmer there has done is he basically plants the grain in November into really, really cold soil. Um, and then he harvests kind of in very late September, early October, which is really, really like different to like how you would farm down in Sussex, for example. So it's really exciting that he has completely adapted his farming to uh, his microclimate. Um, and the grains that are in this bread, the seeds that were used to make this bread, um, he actually sourced from both Austria um, and the uh, bread lab in Washington. Um, and, and the reason being is because, uh, because can, of- can I, can I just stop you there? Yeah. Bread lab in Washington. Yeah. There's a bread lab. Yeah, you gotta you gotta you gotta oh visit him. Yeah, you gotta visit him. <laughs> so this guy called Steve Jones um is you know has this massive seed bank of like really old heritage and ancient wheat varieties and, and not just wheat, many, many more. Mm. Um and he's doing really exciting things in terms of trying to get people to eat better bread, mm. using all these ancient grains, etc. Mm. etc. Et but it's based in Washington University. Um and he has worked with Andrew, who is my Supplier, um, for many, many, many years, um, maybe over 25, 30 years. Um, and then there was this guy um, in Austria who was probably like the first guy in Europe like 30 years ago to really, really, really start um, taking kind of old seeds seriously again. And he was uh, planting all these ancient varieties to now give current farmers who are interested in this way of um, farming kind of access to to things that you can just kind of start planting. Um, so yeah, so um, Austrian seeds, there's some Russian seed in there as well. There's um, a hard uh, spring wheat from Russia in there um, and it's just 5% white. So obviously in the UK right now, 60% um, of the bread that is eaten is just white. Oh wow. So like that's just hugely calorific yeah. and no really good Absolutely. enzymes or minerals yeah. or anything in yeah. there. It's just stripping everything out exactly. of it, the B yeah. vitamins and yeah. the fiber. And like, and no wonder you're putting on weight by eating yeah. that bread. Yeah. I mean, And that's why I think bread has a massive branding 100%. problem. Yeah, and it? this like wheat belly thing, I mean, yeah. I, I think that should be clarified as endosperm wheat belly, you know, like <laughs> it's yeah. not really wheat belly. Yeah. Um, so Can I just say the way, way you talk about bread is almost like the way a sommelier would talk about wine. Has anyone told you that? No. Honestly, I think there's so many parallels between what you've just said, because you've talked about the microclimate, the certain types of growers, where yeah. you've got the seeds from, because that's exactly how sommeliers and winemakers would also think about the, yeah. the complex product that they're creating. And this is a beautiful, complex product. And also to your point, actually, like with viticulture, viticulture is dependent on that plant going down and the fungi meeting the root and it kind of being able to stretch like four meters down to like get all these minerals and vitamins in. And actually to be perfectly honest, the Holy Trinity for me is cheese, wine and bread. <laughs> natural <laughs> wine though, natural go, yeah. wine. Yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, 3% um, of the bread consumed in the UK is made in like, like a bakery like E5 Bakehouse or somewhere like that. So 3%, that is hugely yeah, small. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then likewise, in the wine world, only about 2 to 3% of wine across the world is farmed naturally. So there is a huge, huge um, kind of like union of the two. And I personally only eat bread like this and I only drink natural wine. Yeah. And it's quite um, weird, isn't it? Because over the, the last few decades, you would have seen that actually reduce. And I think now we're seeing a resurgence of natural wines yeah. and actually more bakehouses. I'm certainly yeah. seeing that in the more affluent areas of London, yeah. whether that's it, actually going to permeate throughout the whole country. I'm not too sure. So the only thing with um, more bakeries on the high street now is 
I do want people to understand what they are being sold as well. So the thing that pisses me off about like the sourdough world mm. is lots of bakers are so obsessed with the aesthetics of a loaf. Yeah. They're packing it with white wheat flour, mm. high protein, Canadian mm. flours, all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're not cool with the fact that like maybe a loaf is just a bit lower. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So I think for me, I have huge respect for anyone that is getting in at 3am in the morning and doing their thing. But I would love for there to be education around a loaf shouldn't be like really, really holy yeah. and like it should look a bit denser. Yeah. Like yeah, density yeah. and fiber, it's just a thing that yeah. goes hand in hand. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we need to embrace our less aesthetically pleasing food Agreed. in general, isn't Agreed. it? Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let, let's go into, are you going to talk and then, to me about yeah, this Yeah, this one? is, yeah, this is actually pretty similar, but in this I've incorporated <laughs> a seed. So this is an einkorn seed, uh, which oh, is this, okay. yeah, 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 so yeah. this is like the first wheat, um, ever planted really yeah. um so that's quite cool um is that the yeah. short i always get confused is that the shorter stumpier one or the longer very very long very very long one anything yeah. ancient and old mm. is like super super long uh-huh. like really long like as tall as us so the stubbier varieties are the ones those that would have survived are the modern cultivars uh-huh. Uh-huh. so those are herbicided pesticided da, la, 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 la. Mm. like if you walk if you walk out into the country and you see wheat that is short that is a modern wheat that was bred to be used for fertilizer yeah. Wheats, all of these grasses should be incredibly long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incredibly long. I, I remember because I did a whole section in my first book about the issues with gluten that people are finding that are not literally related to gluten intolerance. Is what we've done to 100%. gluten-containing products yeah, like pasta and breads and everything yeah. else. Yeah, and when you like you know fertilize a wheat grain, you know it's kind of like giving a wheat grain crack cocaine or like you know huge amounts of sugar. It's just like the proteins turn out differently whereas with ancient old organic varieties the proteins are so so long you know the proteins that do affect people with celiac disease and gluten intolerance aren't there in any you know huge quantities at all like they're so small that you know if someone comes to me and I'm I'm gluten intolerant I'm celiac I'm like you know what try this bread einkorn wheat fermented for 48 hours see how you feel and they're like Mate, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I'm back on the bread. Yeah. Which is really exciting. That is really exciting. I mean, how yeah. can you live without it? Totally, totally. So, yeah, so shall we cut this one, maybe? Yeah, yeah, let's go for that one. I can cut it repeat. I, I'm oh, sure you do this you, job. You do, you yeah, do. <laughs> um, so, um, I use a rye starter to make all my bread. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason being is rye starter, uh, when mixed with uh, flowers and waters and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I should have brought a brown. No, it's all right. Um, you can do another slice and then yeah, we can put another sweet. One. Yeah, so a rye starter kind of acidifies the flour that it's mixed with completely to create a lot more enzyme activity, which then means, <clears throat> you know, the minerals and vitamins in that grain are more absorbed, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So many bakeries and many people uh, will make like a white sourdough starter or even a cacao one. But for me, I find rye the most interesting mm-hmm. um, in terms of what you get end product wise. Are there any benefits of having like other starters at all? Or yeah. Do you, yeah, so you can mix starters. So you could make a bread and use like a white, or a white sourdough starter and a rye starter and a cacao starter. And the more starters you use, the more acidification, uh, which uh, is better for our health. But what I like doing is using a rye starter and like kefir uh-huh. because the uh, the bacteria that like the kefir uh, makes along with uh-huh. the wheat, the grain, 
is very very interesting and the taste is sensational Amazing. as well so um, for me it's all about when I approach a new recipe or a bread for me I'm starting with like okay I want to acidify the loaf completely so that we have complete enzyme activity we've got loads of minerals and vitamins coming out of there but I also want it to taste good I want someone to become addicted to yeah. this taste yeah. you know what I mean <laughs> um, so that's really really important to me that we we bring nourishment but we bring flavour as well because yeah, you'll, totally. never, yeah. you'll never you need flavour and function that's yeah, like totally. my motto in the kitchen yeah 100% yeah. and so yeah so that's that one um, and then uh, this one I also make with a rice starter I mean I need to start using more starters but you know when you just when you if, use the thing that's the best yeah, it's just so yeah, hard yeah, to totally, yeah. and I think for me now I'm so consumed by nourishment that it's so difficult to eat something without knowing I'm, I'm, I'm not going to absorb the most amount of minerals and vitamins yeah. I could so I think the more you research and the more you study, you know, knowledge just makes you much more functional. Totally, yeah. And, and, and which is really, really cool as well. Yeah, I mean, it's um, sort of how I started on my, my personal health journey was through doing a little bit of research and finding about, you know, the amazing benefits of fiber and different plants in your mm-hmm. diet and nuts and seeds and quality fats and all the rest of it. And then once you start small, you kind of build up this repertoire of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then the more you learn, the more you talk about it. And then mm-hmm. it just kind of grows from there. So I yeah. think you, you've you clearly like you're on your way to mastering this art of like health and um, championing bread and, and seeds and everything. But you must have started quite small, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, and it came out of your own health issues. I think. Yeah, 100 percent. Like I'm sure a lot of stuff does for people. But essentially, <clears throat> I suppose let's go back. So um, coming from a horticulturist background, um, I obviously have always had a really, really epic relationship with the soil. Yeah. Um, so we were a family business um, and we had to plant thousands and thousands of trees every Easter. Easter was planting season for us. Um, and then throughout the year, we would maintain the fields of plants. Um, but when I was maybe 10 years old, my mom got cancer for the first time. And I remember her being in the house and you being on the chemo and like all the cancer treatments that you're on um, and having this like kind of epiphany, you know, digging some soil out of the earth, putting in another beech sapling and thinking, when I'm older, I'm going to create a brand that's all about preventative medicine. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, you have these, like, these thoughts when you're a child and you don't know if they'll ever come true. But the older I got um, and the, the more my IBS became an issue for me, um, I was like, okay, I feel like I need to go back to that ambition I had when I was a little girl. Um, and <clears throat> when I was younger, my mom ultimately d- did die of cancer. And, you know, back in the day, Rupi, you know, when you go to a doctor, they didn't talk about lifestyle medicine. So, you know, my mom was bringing me to the, these doctors and they were, you know, saying, here's, um, take these laxatives. And I remember my mom every night taking her cancer medication and she'd do a shot of laxative and then she'd give me a shot of laxative. And I was yeah. like, this is nuts. This is, like, my yeah. mom has cancer. Fair enough. She has to take the laxative because of all the medication she's on. But like, what am I doing? Like a 12, 13 year old girl taking laxative. This is nuts. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I guess intuitively, I always knew food is medicine. Um, so as my IBS got worse and worse and worse into my early 20s, I was like, if I don't sort this out, my colon, something's going to happen. Um, so I really, 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 really need to start taking this seriously. Um, and I guess, you know, my dad was a maths and science teacher. So science and maths were very much a part of our table chat at dinner time. And um, me and my sister would do like theorems together. So, you know, oh, this, that, this that way of like, like yeah, <laughs> this way of approaching family meal time was definitely um, educational. Yeah. Um, and I guess for me then to just go and study um, food science myself 
felt very natural. Yeah. Um, and then my cousin's on the Health Board of England, so I had her guidance. Um, and then my sister is obviously a doctor. We've loads of doctors in the family. Yeah. So, you know, there was constantly people to spitball things with. You know, lots of my friends were dietitians and stuff. And I guess I was like, okay, I feel like the world has enough doctors and dietitians and stuff. But what the world doesn't have enough of is like really, really good food producers. Yeah. Um, so over the course of maybe 18 months, um, I was like buying and studying all the health papers at the time that, coming, that were coming out on gut health. Um, and through these science papers, I obviously discovered, you know, uh, the importance of prebiotic fiber, um, how to consume dietary fiber for someone with IBS, how to consume dietary protein, etc., etc. Um, and uh, basically kind of designed these mathematical equations based on how my gut bacteria liked to eat. Um, and then applied these mathematical equations to recipes, um, specifically bread recipes. Um, and the reason I chose bread was because of the amount of fiber I could get from bread versus a plant-based diet. Oh. Of course, bread is a plant-based diet yeah, and part yeah. of it. But um, using grains as opposed to like eating loads and loads of broccoli, mm. I knew it was going to be kind of the way to really Absolutely. up the amount of fiber I was yeah. going to get into my diet. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that as well, particularly yeah. like within the paleo persuasion, you know, they think that you get enough fiber just from having like, you know, your green leafy vegetables and your stems and stuff. Uh, in reality, no, you know, you're going to get yeah. the most amount from whole grains. Whole and grains, and bread is a good quality bread is a very good carrier of those uh, fibers, but also the B vitamins mm -hmm. within that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big time. And for me as well, Ruby, like variety was key. So obviously history taught me that like back in the day we were eating, you know, 10 varieties of wheat in our bread. And now we weren't. So I was like, okay, well, people didn't have the gut issues we have today back then. So let's go back to that. And and a mixture, I guess, of for me, Ruby, it's really about like the perfect balance between intuition and common sense and science. And I think when you mix the two, balancedly, fairly, you educate yourself, you read enough. I think that's when you you make food that works for you. But I think if you focus too one way or too the other way, and I'm sure we both know people who go maybe off in their own separate direction a little bit too much. I think that's when fads come to play, gluten-free becomes a thing that everyone's doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so for me, it was really, really important to, to balance the two ways of approaching food. This looks amazing, by the way. This, uh, I, I mean, it looks amazing because of your bread. Uh, oh, no, not <laughs> all. I think it's a pomegranate. It really set everything off. <laughs> really good. How was your lunch? Very good. Yeah. Really, really like the Barbary. I think mm. the cherry on top was the bread, honestly. Oh, thanks. Like, the team here absolutely loved it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry I burnt the second batch, <laughs> which you won't see yeah. on YouTube. But um, if you do want to see the recipe that I made for Karen um, and the beautiful bread that she brought in, check it out on YouTube, thedoctorskitchen.com. You'll see it there. Um, thank you so much for coming in. So pleasant. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. I'm like tongue twisted yeah. after saying Barbary. <laughs> Barbary. Barbary. Yeah, I you know what? I used to be um, a recipe developer for a subscription company many years ago. I didn't know this. Yeah. And uh, we used quite a lot of Barbary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What did you use it for? Um, it so we were doing lots of curries um, and stews. Um, and the whole concept was make a healthy meal in 20 minutes or less. Uh -huh. And I think using an ingredient like Barbary just brings such a huge amount of, I mean, there must be seven things going on in your mouth. Yeah. So yeah. I, I feel like it was a good hack to kind of make a meal. 
I've heard this before. So um, a friend of mine's a chef, and they do. He's got his own sort of like um, delivery style company, like yeah. a dark kitchen, mm-hmm. and they, they deliver it. And he told me that the chef's secret weapon is um, calamansi vinegar. Mm. Um, and I guess like even Jamie Oliver's five ingredients, like he required that you had red wine vinegar, I think, yeah. as one of the ingredients that is part of the non-five. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And that's yeah, because yeah. it just had so much flavor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just Incredible. the acidity is so good. It's going back to what we were talking about, like yeah. fat, salt, Getting the saliva heat. going, the digestive juices, get Definitely. that enzyme activity going. It's so good. Yeah. Actually, I yeah. talked about this with Chef Boulay, um, at the podcast you yeah, listened yeah, yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved that. He, uh, he's brilliant. He's like just such a wonderful speaker, a passionate subject. Yeah. Um, a passionate advocate for the food as medicine movement. He, um, he was telling me about the, the process of Kaiseri in, in Japan, where they mm-hmm. have like certain steps before you eat certain things. So mm-hmm. that everything has a pattern. It's kind of similar, I think, to the Ayurvedic way of eating. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the sort of bitter foods always seem to come at the start. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there was an amazing restaurant in Hackney many years ago called Duck Soup. Um, which is now closed and it's been oh. replaced actually by bakery so I'm not, not that sad <laughs> um, but they, um, that was how they, they did their meal so you started with like acidic things then ferments then onto the bitter leaves you know then onto kind of the like m- more umami kind of salty foods mm. and then onto the meats and then sweet thing for dessert but and, and I loved going there they had loads of fermented drinks kombuchas um, all that kind of stuff uh, which is quite nouveau like maybe eight years ago and I just yeah just that and, and and the way he talks about it on the podcast with you, you just feel so good after eating in that way. It's yeah. just like, yeah, my guts are like so happy right yeah, now. Yeah, totally, yeah. Um, so yeah I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of that way of eating. And also he's like a poet when he speaks. He it's is. just he so really good. Is. He, the, the program that he did when he went to Japan, it did, they did three episodes. The ones that I saw were only half an hour. Actually, mm. there was like hours and hours of recordings. And he goes to like Okinawa and he sees all these centenarians and he sees mm. what they're eating. And honestly, the thing that strikes me about it isn't just the ingredients in themselves that are healthy. So the seaweed, um, the organically grown crops and stuff that they have very plainly. Mm-hmm. It's actually the complexity of the entire diet. Yeah, And I, I think it speaks to what we were talking about, about your bread. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think about bread as like just a few ingredients. Yeah. But the type of bread that you talk about with such passion is so so complex from the mm. different flowers that you use and stuff mm-hmm. tell and, us more and, about and, that and the way to mill so um let's put it into and the perspective way to mill as well. yeah, yeah, yeah so mm. well i'll just hit people with a few facts first just so we really understand what bread is so um 99.8 percent of british people buy bread um and we consume on average 60 loaves of bread a year per person that's one loaf of bread a week um, 85% of the bread that is made in the UK right now is that kind of sliced packaged bread that we see on a supermarket shelf, um, which most bakers, um, similar to me, would vouch that's not bread because there's so many stabilizers in there to kind of keep it fresh for two weeks at a time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a different product. Mm. Um, and then uh, 12% of the bread made in the UK right now is uh, made in an in-store bakery. Um, so we can all probably think of, like, you know, er- every single supermarket across the UK has their own in-store bakery making stuff. Um, and then 3% of bread made in this country is made on the high street in like a really, really good bakery where, you know, they respect um, the use of a sourdough starch or they, you know, use fermentation methods to a degree, whether it be <clears throat> a retarded method or uh, just leave it out for a few hours and then bake it. Um, and within within those stats, um, 60 to 70% of the bread that's eaten in the UK is white. 
just white bread and 50% of the bread eaten in the UK today is a sandwich um, so, so I'm still like in shock about the 60% yeah, of people eating white bread white bread which is which is nothing. yeah yeah, yeah. And, uh, so um, let's talk about the 3% because those are the people that can really pave the way for bread becoming uh, part of this preventative medicine way of, way of living. So within um, sourdough bakeries, and I'm sure your listeners can uh, relate to whatever they have in their neighbourhood or have visited one, um, there is this um, love for an aesthetically pleasing loaf of bread. Um, and uh, people and, and we as customers have come to expect a sourdough to have lots of holes in it, like look quite high. Yeah. Um, and that will be the case whereby a lot of white flour is present. So white flour obviously contains um, like all the gluten, the protein, um, and it, it will vary in, in, in the amount based on where it's grown, whether it be, you know, grown in Canada or grown here in Britain. In Britain, we have lower pr- protein amounts in our flour. In Canada, there's much more. Um, and that's why we incorporated uh, so many Canadian flours um, and American flours into our milling here to, to give the bakers what they wanted aesthetically. Mm. Um, so we kind of need to pare back how we look at bread and, and, and start really looking at it for our health and then looking at flavor um so the way uh the journey of a loaf of bread is um a seed is planted in the ground um, and that seed will have been uh either bred um by a seed bank um or a private company um to handle lots of herbicide and pesticide or that seed will be a really, really ancient variety um, that can be planted organically and can withstand hail, rain and snow very, very well, can withstand lots of weeds growing around it, doesn't need any anything from the farmer, bar, plant it, sow it and then harvest it come harvest time. Um, so you, you immediately, you, you become a consumer of one or the other. You're going the organic ancient grain route or you're going like the very, very, very commercial commercial wheat route. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whichever route you go kind of dictates your health post eating that loaf of bread. Um, so let's first talk about the commercial route. Um, so um, if I'm a bakery and I really like that aesthetically pleasing, like white fluffy sourdough, I'm probably going to go for that commercial wheat. Um, that's There's been lots of herbicide, lots of pesticides. Um, and then I'm going to mix that with um, a sourdough starter uh, to ferment it and, you know, make it healthier um, and more digestible. Um, so the reason we use a sourdough starter um, is we want like lots of enzyme activity. Mm-hmm. We want people to be able to assimilate the minerals and vitamins in that a lot better. Um, and then, you know, we, we bake it. It's a loaf. You eat that and, you know, maybe you've got gluten intolerance. Maybe you've, you're, you've got celiac disease um, and you're like, whoa, I feel really bloated. I feel really nauseous. I feel tired. I feel agitated. You know, my testosterone levels are really high now. I'm putting on weight. Um, and, and that is not surprising mm. because you are, you know, eating a wheat that is not very natural. It hasn't grown in the way it wants. We look at, um, you know, for example, we visit E5 Bakehouse in um, Hackney and we go for their wholemeal heritage sourdough loaf. Well, the journey of that is... Um, Ben will have sourced his uh, grain from an incredible producer such as Gilchester's in Northumberland. Mm-hmm. Um, Gilchester's have made it their 
their their mission to just grow ancient or heritage varieties of wheat um, in lots of you know mixed populations so those guys will harvest their wheat they will mill it on site which is absolutely amazing because the fresher the better mm. the fresher the better because more enzyme activity that activity can kind of decrease you know the 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 further away that comes from you know farm to 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 mill so that makes a lot of sense actually because if as soon as you're exposing the surface area to the air and it becomes oxidized exactly yeah yeah, so you're going to reduce that yeah so andrew the farmer up in northumberland founder of gilchester is is going to send uh well he can actually he's got two options he can mill on site and send to ben and hackney or Ben actually has mill and hackney, so Ben can take the grain and mill on site and then, you know, make it into a bread straight away. Amazing. But whatever avenue both those two guys choose, um, let's say Ben wants to make, yeah, a heritage wholemeal loaf. So he will use maybe like an einkorn wheat that's grown in Northumberland. He might mix it with some emer. He might mix it with like another wholemeal wheat, um, which maybe isn't an ancient grain, but is certainly a heritage wheat. Um, heritage wheats uh, are like wheats kind of pre the green revolution in which we started using herbicides. Um, and then Ben will mix that flour with a rye, whole, whole grain rye sourdough starter. The reason um, that starters are so incredibly important in bread making is this. When you mix wholemeal flour with water, the alurin layer, which contains the phosphorus um, and like lots of vitamins and minerals, um, that reacts with the pH of the water to start um, kind of absorbing all the iron and zinc from the grain. So phosphorus, its storage form phytate, mm-hmm. er, phytate is uh, negatively charged. Mm-hmm. Iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium, all these incredible nutrients and minerals, they are positively charged. Um, So the reason uh, intuitively back in the day we knew to make a sourdough starter was when you mix your sourdough starter with water, you reduce the pH of the water, thereby uh, reducing this kind of phytic acid response. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that is the crux of kind of the whole bread making thing, right? So... Uh, you want to know your bakery you want to know where your flour is coming you want to know that they're using sourdough starters that completely acidify um, the wholemeal flour so that you get all the vitamins and minerals all those B vitamins all those E vitamins etc um, so um, and and whereby the milling to answer your question properly really comes into play is there's two ways of milling so there's the modern way and there's the old way mm-hmm. the old way of milling flour is stone ground so creating lots of friction um, which is awesome and kind of breaking down the brand structure. Uh, the second way, the modern way, is using big, like kind of two meter long roller mills that are so hot they can kill a lot of the enzyme activity that should happen in the grain. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why I tell all my bakery students and everyone that will listen to me to always buy stone ground flour because the less enzyme activity you have going on, you know, the less able the grain is to break down itself into vitamins and minerals that feed us and reduce inflammation around our body so how we mill things is one part of the equation and it is an incredibly important part of the equation yeah that's fascinating because i see parallels between how you treat the raw ingredient of oils and how you yeah. create oils with with how you make bread now um, because if you take uh, the nuts or the seeds to a high temperature, yeah. you're actually destroying a lot of the phytonutrients in oils themselves. Yeah. 
the heat extraction method and chemical extraction methods can be quite harmful as well mm-hmm. um, and can, can be inflammatory and, and there are some studies that have shown that um, and also you, you get left with a less palatable product Yes. and I think there's so many parallels with that with bread making so I, I wouldn't have thought about the enzymatic activity of the actual grain but now it makes perfect sense yeah and I think this equation of everything coming together so so beautifully is so so crucial and I think you know you know, understanding that we have to reduce the pH of water to enable the grain to not kind of spontaneously combust on you almost. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there there so in the world today, the World Health Organization has identified that across the world we are deficient in iron and zinc, even though we're eating more cereals than ever before. Mm. So twenty percent of our daily calorie intake across the world on average comes from wheat. Yeah. But how can we absorb iron and zinc when we don't use a sourdough starter to reduce that pH, enabling phosphorus to just like go off and do its thing and allow all those other vitamins and minerals present to eventually, you know, go into our body and allow us to kind of absorb them and, um, and, and, and yeah, do what they're meant to do for our health. That's such a good point because the same sort of conclusion was reached by uh, the researchers, I think it was published in The Lancet, where they looked at... Uh, consumption rates of foods over the last uh, I think it was 20 years the headline was our diet is killing us what really was was going on is that we're not eating enough whole grains nuts and seeds and legumes and that's Mm -hmm. actually where you get a lot of Mm -hmm. iron and zinc from as well as some animal products but I guess if the food system is failing us then Mm -hmm. how do you expect people even if they are going for the whole grain bread in their supermarket to actually attain the levels that will be conducive with healthy outcomes yeah absolutely and because um government and stuff is so aware of this now what is happening is lots of white flowers are um you know being uh what's the word for it basically we're adding calcium we're adding things to our white flower we're mm. fortifying it mm. uh, fortifying our cereals massively more than mm. we i mean we've we never fortified cereals yeah. pre-world war ii yeah. um and and therein i guess lies the problem you know as a as a race we've kind of become lazy to what we need to do to make our food sit well with us yeah. um, and give us the life that we want to live, which assumingly for everyone is a healthy one. Absolutely. Um, and I think I'm so, so passionate about eating organically as well. And I think it's one thing to say eat whole grains and it's one thing to say, you know, eat more plants, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're doing that and the food you're eating is so sprayed with pesticide and herbicide, you are not eating a natural food. You are eating a food coked up on some sort of like weird chemical stuff that like you're is completely foreign to your body. <laughs> I mean, it just blows my mind. You know what I mean? Like it blows my mind. And you know, we're here sat in January, and a lot of people are doing um, a vegan month, um, which is cool. But or are organic sales increasing this month mm. in conjunction with that? Plant sales are going up for sure, but mm. with that herbicide goes up pesticide goes up and and what blows my mind is the amount of times that the food we eat gets sprayed like a season Mm. so for example in winemaking which is very very similar to grain making um a vineyard in australia or france could be spraying their vineyard up to 16 times a season which is nuts so like instead of having you know pre-World War II, like loads of varieties of grain mm. in your diet. Now you've got loads of variety of herbicide and pesticide. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like it, it, sometimes it can be um, 
uh, not very politically correct to, you know, go so, so hard on this like organic Mm. way of eating because people are like, it's elitist, you're privileged to be able to buy organic food, et cetera, et cetera. But um, when I was running the bakery in Hackney, we had loads of customers that were on the bread line Mm. that were buying our bread because they fundamentally understood the importance of organic whole grain food in their diet. And those were the people as well that understood, you know, the lifelong impact that one way of eating was having on the planet versus another. Well, let's go back to that. So we talked a little bit earlier about how um, our agricultural system has uh, changed a lot since World War Two, because what we were doing is prioritizing yield at any cost. Yes. So just trying to get as much food as possible to. Uh, uh, feed the population so it's from more and more monocultures but then also that combined with the types of um, uh, agricultural practices led us to be more reliant on things like herbicides and pesticides and also there's uh, a sort of like uh, commercial corporate aspect as well where Mm -hmm. if there are a handful of companies that hold the patents over seeds or the, mm-hmm. the lock and key over seeds so to speak um, then they essentially control a lot of what is produced and then and then this leads to these sorts yeah, of practices absolutely so. so the way the world works <coughs> currently um, and, and we are in a changing time fortunately but still currently there are seed banks around the world and as you said there are owners of seeds with patents of certain seeds um, and the more global we became, obviously, the, the more commoditized food became. Um, and governments saw fit to um, make everything a bit more like linear and make everything a bit more uniform because that meant trade was easier um, and everything had a certificate to kind of allow it to be traded. Um, and there are huge benefits to that, of course. There's huge benefits to certification um, of food. But... What happened was certifying these seeds is a really, really expensive game. Um, and through the legislation of um, seeds and seed banks, etc., we kind of overnight stopped growing thousands and thousands and thousands of varieties. So um, eventually what kind of used to be a very government led job, you know, seed protection, soil protection became one of global interest. Um, and Unfortunately, we live in a world where uh, big corporate companies work side by side, side with government in terms of advising them. You know, it's it's a it's a very um, it, it, they share a lot of knowledge with it's one another. It's quite insidious, isn't it? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, kind of very 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 quickly over the course of a few years, sixty um, percent of the world sea trade uh, just was bought up by kind of four main companies. Um, and those companies are incentivized by, by profit margins. Um, and they got very, very, very um, stiff on making sure that everything was legislated, like everything, everything, everything had to go through. So, for example, um, if I'm a farmer in Suffolk um, and I want to grow a new type of wheat, I need to go through a 10 year kind of period of where I need to prove that this wheat is going to drive more yield than the wheats currently on this national list. Um, And I also have to pay £100,000. So we have people trying to get into a food system who have no money but are very well-intentioned, but they will never be able to get their hands on £100,000, never Mm. mind the land needed to prove point this wheat is better than 
we are currently on said national list. What, what's the what's the actual reason as to why that is still the case now? Um, so b- because of like where it legally is at this relationship yeah. with the bigger companies exactly. And, ah, so okay. um, so it, it it it's essentially I mean the government could do a lot about it. So um, the government have said this is the national list. These are all the wheats that are allowed on it. Um, and if you're not on if you're if you want a pharmacy that's not on this list, well, I mean tough luck. Or go away, buy some seeds from a seed bank that you do actually want to grow and maybe bring back into um, plantation, um, and 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 tell me, check out if they're going to be better than these seeds or not. Um, so a, a farmer could spend ten years, uh, you know, with whole hundreds and hundreds of seeds from a seed bank, hoping that some of them are going to germinate and hoping some of them will have more yield than the other ones and, mm. and it might just all you know fall on deaf ears right. so um so we're not incentivizing entrepreneurial spirit within the farming absolutely industry absolutely not um so back in 2002 you could only grow a wheat that was on this national list right. um but in 2008 due to social mobilization um across the world particularly in south america um where like peasant farmers continued even though the legislation said whatever it said they continue to just grow and keep all these um, heirloom varieties alive. Um, through that and, and, and also through kind of, I guess, it, more so than anything, the bakery industry and the bakers within that industry wanting more from the grains that they were using, wanting more flavour, wanting more nutrition, um, from this kind of movement towards food as taste and nourishment again came this I guess, resurgence of farmers who are entrepreneurial, who were maybe already organically farming, but now wanted to kind of opt that by, you know, bringing ancient varieties back in to our system, et cetera, et cetera. So in 2008, um, the government said, okay, um, as a conservation kind of mechanism, you can now start growing these heritage varieties again, but you have to be registered with us this seed has to have an owner mm-hmm. now you're the owner of it you have to pay a subscription fee you know every year that to keep that that going um so you know there, there's still lots of strings like there's still a lot of work that one has to put in to um bring more diversity to our soil microbiomes health again mm. um and i mean that's quite sad but i guess on the other hand we are lucky that there are farmers out there entrepreneurial enough to be able to get investment to be able to get loans from the bank to be able to get grants from universities and work alongside universities I think Gilchester's is a really good example of a mm-hmm. farmer who went to the PhD at Newcastle University um, and, and it really engaged them and through the relationship with that university you know that opened up you know conversations with Washington State University and you know people in Switzerland and Austria and stuff like that so on one hand, the global stage and, and the global players have actually enabled Britain to kind of start refarming these heritage grains. But on the flip side of that, globalisation has put us into this mess in the yeah, first place. Absolutely. Um, and I guess, you know, pre pre kind of the 1900s, it was uh, crop husbandry is a wonderful way of talking about it. So, you know, a farmer would just figure out over time the seeds that suited his microclimate and his soil and you and that was the way it was yeah but post-world war ii what we did were was let's make uh let's make the soil suit the plant or let's not even really think about the soil like let's just create some products to make these like 20 crops work across europe 
which is just like so so crazy it is insane it's kind of like force forcing the entire population to eat a certain way a certain 100%. macronutrient composition a certain cuisine it's just saying this is what we do now this yeah. is optimal for health or whatever for the majority of people so everyone's going to do it without yeah, any totally. consideration of intervariability yeah. and the soil and this is a lovely segue into the soil because mm-hmm. i think not enough people care about the soil yeah and the importance of the soil and I mean, our diversity food is reconstituted soil exactly like exactly. i remember growing up um doing lots of planting and and fortunately i feel so blessed to have had this way of living i was so aware that the heads of lettuce i then ate were just whatever was in the soil and I never washed my lettuce when I was growing up. Like I never washed my food because I was so obsessed with soil. I mean, anyone that's a bakery student of mine, I do wash the lettuce I serve in my bakery school. Um, just because obviously I don't want anything bad to happen. But I mean, my choice is that I don't, you know what I mean? So I think that's a lovely way of putting it. If if you can reflect on just that one line, if that's your one takeaway from this podcast, that your, your food is reconstituted soil, then I think everything just starts to kind of fit in. It starts making sense, yeah. doesn't it? You yeah. kind of see the cycle of life, the food life, yeah. and animal life, everything. Mm-hmm. It all has to be with mm-hmm. a, a nutrient-dense soil. And how have we got to this? This is an education for me as well, because I don't think traditionally I've thought too much about farming practices. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is why I wanted to, you to come on the podcast, because not only do you know so much about it, but you're... You're also not afraid to talk about subject matters that are politically incorrect. Whenever mm-hmm. I mention the subject of organic, mm-hmm. I always get shut down because I'm you know, thought to be elitist or whatever. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think it's a very important conversation to have. It's so important. And we can't have hang-ups about these things. Mm-mm-mm. I think we need to... Uh, it's something I wrote about my first book. We have the opportunity to change the future food landscape for generations to come. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are going to be arguments against organic farming in the short term. But long term, what do we want to create? A population that is uh, healthy, thriving and uh, and, and is, is nourished by mm-hmm. a good performing soil. Just reliant on good food versus pharmaceutical products. 100%. Yeah. Exactly. That is the best form of preventative medicine. What, yeah. And it starts in our soil. So there are a few organizations that I think are championing this but in terms of the way i think about soil i think the reason why we've seen a lot of degradation of the mineral concentration and the biome of the soil so the actual living because so soil we think of as dirt it's not dirt it's mm-hmm. it's a living breathing entity yeah. with microbes and, and bacteria and everything fungi um but the, the way i think about why it's been degraded is uh, two things two main things anyway and correct me if i'm wrong i've, I've left anything out monoculture and overuse of herbicides and pesticides absolutely so um obviously there are many ways of um approaching monoculture um and some farms uh depending on their microclimate the best thing to do there will just to be rotate animals um you know have sheep one week have cows the next have goats the next um and there's just turds everywhere <laughs> um and then the second way is using you know compost materials you know food waste seaweed obviously is a brilliant one um, and, and maybe some amount of animal turd mm-hmm. but um, certainly that is again kind of a part of like crop husbandry mm. the farmer so there's a farm there's sheep drove farm in Hampshire um, and they are they they heavily rotate their animals because they have found that that has given the soil in that part of the world a huge amount of nourishment mm. and has then enabled them to grow a very very good variety of ancient grain but in Suffolk where there's more sunlight and more photosynthesis and stuff like that they have maybe found that it's actually much better just to use like vegetable like 
you know, composition and seaweeds and stuff like that. Um, so, and this is where actually I see people being elitist. Um, as so, let's say you are um, a vegan, but you don't eat organically, but you have lots of problems with people eating animals. Okay, that's fair enough. You're completely entitled to that, but are you entitled to attack farmers for what they do when that's a difficult job? So part of like the skill and the intuition and the science around being a farmer is to live with that farm for maybe 70 years mm. and discover what is best to drive the most like health and nourishment into the soil. Mm. And for me, that is the most respectable job in the world. To be able to do that and commit to that over a lifetime is so, so, so incredible. And it's fundamental to our health. So, you know, if you think, you know, eating animals is not good for your health, okay, fine. But like, actually, let's look at the facts here. Like, let's look at the facts of soil health. Farming has to exist. Mm. If anything, I think it's the one industry that needs to grow bigger, but with definitely a bit more legislation around, you know, being organic, being mm. more natural, not spraying as much, etc., etc. I think we need to become much more local in terms of how we look at farming. And I think we can't really discuss farming as a whole anymore mm-hmm. because it's so microclimate based. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for, you know, governments in America to infiltrate the Venezuelan government and how they do things or, you know, us to infiltrate like Ethiopian's government, that is just wrong. Mm-hmm. We need to obviously globally come together and say, hey, we're going to just do better for our soil. But now let's let it up to like governments and social groups within those countries to um, not dictate, but certainly kind of get behind one another um, and, and, and grow better and, you know, walk on our soil better. What do you say to the criticisms that people would have about the importance of yield and how if we go to a more natural organic way of farming, that the produce that we'd be able to uh, pr- produce would just be so minimal or not to the uh, amounts that we need it in, in today's day and age? So, um, firstly... Or do you think that's a, not a concern at um, all? I, I, I think it's definitely a concern that we need to be very mindful that we, we create enough food in this world to feed a growing population of people. So we think that by 2050, we'll have 10 billion people in the world. Um, and... Um, most of those numbers are actually going to grow in places like Africa and South America. Um, so yes, it is so, so, so crucial to not be misguided by nourishment and kind of forget about yield. But what has been proven time and time again is that the more variety in our soils, the more robust our crops are to microclimates. Um, and I think that's why we need to kind of say... Uh, I mean, World War Two was not anything to do with the soil. World War Two was people killing people. That was like a political, that was a horrendous time in political mm. history. But that had nothing to do with agriculture or horticulture. So because people killed each other um, and because people were starving and like farms were just trodden, vineyards across the world, like, you know, land was destroyed. Mm. Um, we obviously had to concern ourselves with yield. But now... If we can, if, if politically we can lead ourselves safely and fairly, and if we can uh, continue to, you know, yearn for a politically sta- stable uh, globe, then farming has nothing to worry about, because then we are focused on, you know, 
micro community, you know, growing ancient varieties that can withstand drought. Um, and the ones that can't, it's okay because we grow them amongst the ones that can. And through open pollination, you know, the ancestors of those ancient grains are more and more and more robust to pests, to drought, to a whole range of things. So I think we need to make sure that we, you know, discuss food and not get so kind of, uh, not forget about what politically happens and what politically actually impacts our food. Yeah. Do you think the Eat Lancet Commission went far enough when it came to trying to uh, hypothetically consider what would be the ideal diet for most people because it's quite heavily plant-based mm-hmm. and i think it's been attacked from both sides yeah vegan saying well it's not plant-based enough and uh those who are perhaps more of your persuasion or the, from a farming perspective are saying actually healthy soils to breed healthy plants need healthy animals and we do need a lot more ruminants than is actually suggested in this plate mm-hmm. and if people if everyone was to stop eating animals mm-hmm. tomorrow would we actually have the diversity that you're talking about in the soils Mm-hmm. Or maybe there is a path where you can actually do it with. So just I think plants. again, unfortunately, it is. It's it, it's just so. I, I I've almost become tired of talking about subjects on a global level because yeah. it is just so micro. Mm. And and like I was saying to you, like sheep drove. If they didn't have a lot of animal composition going back into the soil vegetarian composition cannot give their soil the nourishment it needs, like there is in Suffolk and and similarly in Northumberland. Um, they actually favour a 50-50 mix of the two. They favour vegetable composition as well as animal composition. Mm. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I think people, I mean, not everyone, but people still really love to eat meat. I love to eat meat. I don't eat a lot of it. Mm. Um, and actually this year I've promised myself that the meat I eat, I will kill myself. So I think, you know, the more knowledge you acquire, like we were saying earlier, you know, the more it plays on how you function and and i've seen the vegan argument i've seen i've seen these arguments from people and i really respect them i respect mm. them so so much i respect the the animal movement so 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 much but i also respect what globalization has done to our society and because of government and and where we are today and in such a modern tech environment People can't go out and shoot a deer anymore. Mm. They don't have those skills. It's not to say that you shouldn't have them. Mm. You know, if, if like a meteor hit the earth, like very few people would survive because very few people know how to forage, you know, shoot, fish, all of those things. And I think just like learning to read and write, those are things that shouldn't be ignored. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we eat a lot of meat. We, we, we are in a society that has been huge intakers of meat because it is so easy to kill an animal exactly and And, and that is wrong and i think the industrial farming of animals on a global scale is what's responsible for a lot of issues that we have both environmentally yeah um and and it does make you it does make you like really cry it does you know it it, like even right now i feel so infuriated Mm. at like what people have what people have done to animals is absolutely disgusting Mm. but on the flip side to sit at your kitchen table and eat an inflated chicken breast like i've got a problem with that yeah a huge problem with that yeah you know like you know nitpicking bits off animals Mm. not respecting kind of this no nose to tail culture Mm. that fergus henderson kind of really spearheaded in london 30 years ago i think 
I think we are still not consciously eating. Yeah, and I think consciously eating is something a lot more of us need to do. I'm quite proactive in that. Not only do you need to get closer to the soil and the vegetables and the plants that you're eating and Mm -hmm. actually learn how to cook them and prepare them, etc. But also if you choose to eat meat for whatever reason, for health reasons or otherwise, um, you need to understand the process that this has happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, This reminds me of the story. I always come back to it. um, When I shot my uh, my own bird for the first time, Mm -hmm. it's pheasant. And I shot it and I remember holding it in my hands and it was like lifeless. And I remember thinking about it. It was a a sad situation, Mm -hmm. but it made me understand and it brought me so much closer to the food that I was eating. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've always thought very consciously about the type of food that I'm eating and also like where it's come from, the journey it's been on. Um, and it was like one of the most life-changing meals that I made for myself because I plucked it, I gutted it, I prepared it. It was a lovely like uh, ale and uh, a whole bunch of other veggies in this bake that I made. Um, but uh, since then, I, I've learned a lot more about the whole process mm-hmm. of actually how animals are farmed. And that's survival, right? That's survival in a really respectful way. Survival in a non-respectful way is building loads of factories, to kill hundreds of chickens at a time from some you know, weird gas chamber mm-hmm. or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. But what is respectful to our environment, to ourselves and to animals is to kill them really, really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. They've had a good life in the wild. Like we are all animals. Yeah. And I mean, if someone were to kill me, I would prefer a shotgun to them, yeah. <laughs> you know, then like go into a chamber like Hitler style and yeah. like, you know, yeah. that is how we are treating animals. So like I said, I appreciate and respect the vegan movement so, so, so much. But, you know, I I think we all have to maybe go a little bit deeper in our research of things and self-education before we maybe say something disrespectful to someone who's actually farming in a very sustainable way, Mm. who maybe himself is a vegan. Um, And I think, you know, animals and a variety of animals have to exist to keep this planet safe and healthy. For example, there's um, a rewilding project after starting in Suffolk. um, And this month, they're introducing six beavers onto the rewilding estate to help with drought um, and flooding and all these kind of cool things. So like in Britain right now, what's super exciting is we're actually trying to introduce more animals Mm -hmm. into our ecosystem. And Mm -hmm. that's super, super exciting. Yeah, that's super. Yeah. And uh, just to come back to one of your points earlier about how it's quite tough to talk about things like this on a global scale, because like you said, we live in micro environments, whether Mm -hmm. we like it or not. And actually what works for someone here in the UK Mm -hmm. might not be relevant for someone who's living in South America or Uh a part of Africa or part of India or Indonesia. I had a student from Madagascar come to one of my classes a few months ago. Beautiful girl. She's a student here, a science student. And she came and, uh, you know, the day goes on and people kind of unfold their layers a bit more. And she was like, Karen, when I came to this country, I started doing weights. (laughs) And like, I was in an awful way. I had such back pain. I was crippled. You know, I changed my diet completely. You know, I just got so consumed by the information from some of these influencers I was listening to. And my mom got really worried about me. And it took my mom about six months to kind of take me off this rush, this addiction I had come accustomed to, which was doing weights every day, you know, eating a diet she wasn't accustomed to. And and, and she, she, she walked every day in Madagascar. Oh. <laughs> Don't worry. I bet it's like the postman or something. <laughs> Hello? Uh, wh- where's that? 
It's in the hole, yeah, okay, cheers. Very good. To, to read the electric la the electric meter. Oh yeah. <laughs> Great. Tom Watson there for a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, come on in, Tom. Yeah, come in, yeah. Have some bread. <laughs> um so she um Sorry. Yeah, so she literally kind of um, through kind of lots of coaching from her mom, she got off this like, you know, weights every day, new diet, back to her Madagascan way of being, which was like walking the streets of London every day, you know, eating what made her feel happy and nourished. And she's an intelligent girl. She's doing a science degree. You know, she she knows her stuff. She she knows what chemistry is, you know, like and and, and that's why we need to look at things in a microclimate way as well mm. because not only you know is it our soil but it's also our mental health totally and like how one girl can infiltrate another girl's mind to change her for the better inverted commas mm. no i yeah. mean and i think i i think that that's one of the amazing things about teaching people and exchanging knowledge is you hear the positives but you also hear the horror stories and you hear the way we are so easily led and we can be so easily infiltrated and how quickly um a fad kind of is, is taken and, and actioned by so many people and and now that's just the way it is totally i i think we we're led to believe that we're quite binary human beings and that what works for someone will certainly work for the same person or another person or me. Mm -hmm. It's something that I wrote about um, in my first book when I decided to talk about different diets. And there's pros and cons of everything, really. Totally. You know, even though the low-carb movement and the bread, I think, has been uh, a sort of like standby uh, target of that whole thing, yeah. unfortunately. And people have lost their respect for bread. And that's mm -hmm. why I was quite keen for you to come on and talk about it. Um, because of people's underlying belief that there are quick fixes for everything. Mm -hmm. And um, in reality, we're just so different. Mm -hmm. And we change as well. What might be relevant for us when we're growing up might big not time. be relevant when we're in 20s and 30s. Yeah, big you know, time. Women in particular, you change every single month. Yeah, absolutely. And, and throughout our whole lives, when we develop as human beings and mm -hmm. what we're doing, whether we're weight training or not, you know, all these different Completely. things have an impact. I remember, so... Uh, like I've been a baker since I was four years old, but um, professionally um, since probably 2013. Um, and I'm 33 now, going on 34 next month. And I can't eat bread the same way today that I did seven, eight years ago. It is so different. Back then, you know, the first loaves came out of the oven at maybe 8 a.m. And I could eat so much bread throughout the whole day and not put on weight. And now, I have to be mindful of it. Mm. My metabolism has changed. Mm. My hormones have changed. You know, my mind has changed. I think differently. Everything has changed. I breathe differently. You know, my nervous system, my immune system, everything is different and mm. I can feel it. Mm. And for me, the I guess that's also the beauty of being able to teach people and bake people is like, I go on the journey with them. So maybe like seven years ago, I didn't really understand what a 34 year old woman was saying to me. And now I'm like, I want to ring her and be like, Hey, I get you. Now. Like I, I'm there. So I, I feel like with age as well. And, and the more you meet people and, you know, I, I'm so, I just feel like you're so lucky to meet so many people every day. And I mean, it's so tiring and it's exhausting and everything, but your approach to it and your approach to then being able to change someone's life with like such balanced, 
attitude is 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 incredible and i think unless you can approach someone in what you think to be fairly then maybe just don't say anything yeah <laughs> you yeah. know like maybe 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 um rita comes to you and she's like you know what sarah i'm feeling really bloated like i don't know what's going on maybe don't say to her why don't you consider t- coming off gluten maybe gluten's mm, your thing mm. maybe say you know god that sounds that sounds awful really maybe, you know maybe go see a therapist go see a doctor or, you know let's chat or reach out to your sister or whatever it is you know maybe give her some advice that enables her to make her own decision for mm. her own health as opposed to inflicting your belief system on her and i think that's something i've become even more conscious of now so when students come to my bakery and they say you know what? i don't actually eat a lot of bread but i'm doing this but i, I might eat just you know make it once a week and that's fine for me and i'm like that's cool mm. you know what i mean i'm like in my head i'm like oh my god why don't we eat this every day yeah but that's not fair mm. like cool like you're gonna have porridge one day you're gonna da, la, la, la. i'm like mate your gut health is probably way better than mine because you have way more variety i'm so obsessed <laughs> yeah. with bread so i think like yeah i think i've just repeat to put a long story short just become so bored of the global argument i just yeah. i because i, I it, it, fundamentally i can't make sense of it and if i can't make sense of it i get disengaged and i get a little bit angry at the people who are you know still fighting that fight and and aren't trying to actually make a difference yeah in their community i, I think uh, and it's something we were talking about a little bit earlier where it's the collective actions this mm-hmm. collective small actions of a small group of people that yeah. actually will have an impact on local communities yeah. and you're a passionate believer that you're going to revolutionize you know the farming industry and, and actually how we do things from a soil perspective by doing the small activities that you're doing mm-hmm. that are going to gr- obviously grow into a much bigger movement yeah and someone else down the road from me is doing something with mental health in an incredible way and she's coming at the same community mm. with her the way she can help that society and that's really awesome um, and for me uh, that's how I kind of like 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 to live my life every day I'm like where where can I fit into this like what can I bring to this group um, and what can I also like listen to mm. and and sit there with and and how can someone else mind me actually you know what I mean you know when mm. you go into a group of people and maybe there's someone in that group um like for example my best friend she's a therapist um and she she works with some really 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 serious cases where uh, people have really really been badly abused mm. um and you know she doesn't have very much knowledge when it comes to food so i give her all of that and she has said to me because of me you know she poos better she's like doing these incredible farts you know she's doing like her bells <laughs> are like alive and well like her health is just so much better but for me in turn from my best friend my mental health and the way I communicate and the way I use language is better and I feel like that exchange is really 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 cool and that's what I've tried to bring into the bakery school when people come to me of course they're there I need to give them everything I Mm. give them everything Mm. but they also give so much so much to me and I think I've discovered allowing that relationship to happen is what's actually going to be best for us all. I totally agree because I think we're we're less likely to have two-way conversations and mm-hmm. more likely to have one-way shouty conversations where you're trying to constantly convince the other person of your way of thinking. Completely. It's like we're having constant debates whether it be online or in person. Absolutely. And I think we could learn from I th- maybe I'm always I've always been of this disposition because you know, I've done a lot of medicine and you are taught in our communication skill sessions to never preach to the person in front of you, the patient in front of you, your colleague, whatever. You're always taught to be open-minded and listen. 
And, and this is something I do w- in my daily life now, my daily yeah. practice, Whether I'm, even if I'm having a discussion or debate with someone, it's always to listen like, you know what, maybe you're right. Or maybe the way of thinking for you is right for you and it's mm-hmm. not right for me and that's it. And it's, I, I apply that to nutritional arguments, vegan versus meat-eater mm-hmm. arguments, different types of farming methods, whether people are pro or anti-organic. You know, everything I, I sort of understand from the perspective of other people. Mm-hmm. They're just, you, people are just at different places on their journey. Absolutely. And talking about journeys, there's a lovely segue, because uh, you were talking about poo, and your bread was called the poo bread. The magic poo bread, <laughs> the yeah. magic poo I mean, bread. I didn't give it that title, but I was very happy when I got <laughs> yeah. that title. <laughs> Tell me about the Happy Tummy Company. Like, um, you, it came out of your own experiences with IBS. Yeah, um, so um, I was born with IBS. Um, so uh, I was a very happy baby, but my mom was like, her nappies are really clean. <laughs> Something's going on here. So she brought me to the, the GP and he just stuck his his thumb up my bum to unclog me and that that relieved me for a couple of weeks but um I guess uh yeah I've, I've always had this but back in the day I never knew what it was you know I, I just thought I was really bloated um I, I just thought I really had difficulty going to the loo um and my IBS to put in perspective for some listeners who I'm sure will have the same the same experience for me it, w- it would get so bad that I might have like one bowel movement every three weeks so wow. I was in dire straits mm-hmm. um and obviously growing up with a mother who had cancer twice and ultimately died from it, I was very, very aware of how, of the part food had to play in our, in our, in our overall well-being. Um, so um, I've had many jobs, but when I got to London, um, I knew um, I kind of wanted to pursue this idea of food as medicine. Um, so I worked across the food industry in a whole manner of uh, positions to fully understand and appreciate how people um, ingest food so I worked in restaurants because I wanted to see how people experienced food in that setting but I also uh, was a part of this online subscription company because I wanted to understand how what what people were looking for in terms of their weekly recipe or repertoire mm. I worked in cheese making because I wanted to understand about the bacteria involved in cheese um, <clears throat> and I worked in a wholesale um, import business from Greece because I wanted to understand uh, you know the political structures um, of trade that infiltrated that um and then I guess in 2013 my IBS had just gotten so bad that like you know I had back pain a lot mm. I was definitely definitely in a bad way mentally um I I, I was I was suffering from like very regular bouts of depression um and you know I didn't feel good naked like you know I was in a relationship but I was just like oh I don't feel like having sex because I'm just I feel mm. so horrendous um and I was like okay Karen it's time to grab the bull by the horns. You need to get into those science papers. You need to start meeting up with dietitians, you know, lean on your cousin who's on the health board of England, like start having these conversations. Um, and I did. And after an 18 month period, I had basically uh, created this recipe called the Chia Tef Loaf and um, based on all the research that was out at the time in terms of gut health. Um, and I ate this one morning and then I ate it another morning. And I literally went from like pooing maybe once every two weeks to doing two poos a day. Wow. And I was ecstatic, Ruby. I mean, I was just like, this is a miracle, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not a miracle at all, it's just basic yeah, science. Yeah, yeah. But for me, I was just like, oh my God, I've just, this this is brilliant. I'm going to live a happy life now. And, you know, the back pain went away, like all that physical inflammation I had went away. My mood completely changed. You know, I really liked looking at myself in the mirror now. It just, everything changed. Um 
And basically, I gave up my job with the food company I was working with and Shortage House asked me to give a talk to its members on gut health, uh, which I did. And I brought the bread. And for me, I thought this is going to be a two hour chat, you know, whatever. This might make me want to become a dietitian, which I was looking at at the time. Um, And I gave a talk to a room of maybe 200 people and they just wanted to be helped. And like they had the bread, they were all like, this is amazing. You have to turn this into a company. Like, please make this bread for us. And I was like, you do realize like a loaf of this bread because there was so much in it. There were so many nuts, seeds, it's going to cost you 17 pounds. And they were like, fine, because they completely understood that that 17 pounds like by slice was actually quite reasonable blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah it took me about two to three months to set up all my suppliers set up um, you know get organically certified etc etc that's rapid um, yeah but I, I you know I, I like to work hard so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as well you know I mean I, I was married at the time to like a serial entrepreneur and I felt like I definitely had to prove myself uh-huh. yeah. um, and also you know when you have these people you know having chronic IBS is really bad mm. and I understood the people that I met in that room so much that I I wanted to deliver to them ASAP in yeah. terms of yeah. helping them relieve themselves um, but it happened so quickly that I didn't have anyone to help me so Virginia who's an incredible Bul- Bulgarian lady she was um, the cleaner in my house at the time so I asked her did she want to give up her job and become a baker and she was like sure so overnight Virginia started like coming to my house at like 3am and we would just like bake 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 hundreds of loaves together until about and then the first loaf would come out of the the oven at like half eight and we were just baking 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 packaging 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 and then three bikers would rock up at my front door in Hackney to deliver all the bread around London and then Royal Mail would rock up to do the UK deliveries wow Um, and that's kind of how it started it was just like I remember my ex-husband Dylan coming home one night and there was just like bread everywhere. And he was just like, fair play. Yeah. I mean, this is cool, right? This is cool. We've got, and it was so funny, Ruby, because obviously the house smelled of bread so hard on yeah. a, quite a private street. Yeah. Like all the delivery drivers, like DPD, you know, all the lads, parcel force, they'd rock up and they'd be like, do you mind if I just take some? I was like, I was just giving baps to everyone, everyone that called to the door. Just, yeah, I think they love, I think they didn't even have packages. I think the neighbours were in, but they were giving me the boxes for the neighbours just to like get some sweet potato bread. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was all consuming, Rupi. It was all consuming, you know, it, it was it was full on it was full and on. how did the journey go what? um so obviously we, we got to a point where we couldn't bake in the house anymore even though i kind of set it up to allow us to bake mm. maybe 75 kilos of dough a day um and then it got to a point where i started looking at bakeries and all that kind of stuff but i didn't have the cash at the time uh, to to get a place mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to take on investment because I knew as soon as that would happen the direction of the company yeah. would change um, so to not sacrifice the business morals um, I went to a bakery in Hackney that was like an 8 minute cycle down the road from me um, and they gave us space uh, in which to bake out of and ferment out of and everything so that was awesome um, so then started baking out of there um, and that was great and then uh, those guys were like, okay, your operation is becoming too big, so you kind of need to look elsewhere. But again, because I was like, the profit margins of my company were diabolical. Yeah. I'm not a business person. Yeah. Um, I wasn't saving money. 
Um, so I still didn't have any money to like spend on a bakery. So we found another bakery that we could bake out of in London, which we did. Um, but unfortunately that got a little bit messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went back to the bakery and started baking out of there again, mm-hmm. um, which was great. But I guess I got to a point um, with the company whereby it was not going to grow to the place I needed it to without investment. And just every morsel of my body wasn't ready for investment review because I knew I wasn't, I didn't know enough at that point and I wasn't educated enough and I wasn't wise enough, I wasn't old enough. Um, and I just thought if I take on investment now, I'm just gonna contribute to like the rest of the crap that's in the world. I wanna really stand for something. Um, and as well, like I got quite burnt out from doing those kind of hours. So mm. I was like up at three, but like going to bed at 11 p.m. Like that's insane. it was insane. So I was like, I'm not my brand anymore. I'm yeah. teaching good health, but I'm not in good health. Um, and I also got, um, I, I fell out of love with what was happening in the wellness industry. I've got to say, you know, mm. like I, I, I don't ever really social, I don't go to those, I, I don't really, you know, socialize in that circle. Uh, because I find it infuriating what's marketed as health um, and I just thought I don't want to run away from London but I do want to run away and create a sanctuary for people like me who want what's best for them uh-huh. um, and yeah and then I you know I, I come from a, like a farming horticulture background in Ireland so I was I was looking for that I wanted to go back to the roots that made me um, and I wanted to touch the soil again I wanted to grow stuff um, and I wanted to be closer to the farmers that were making and milling the ingredient I was ultimately going to use. Um, And I also, you know, even though the gluten-free movement had become quite big and, you know, we were a part of that because we were making a gluten-free bread. Mm. um, I knew that like, because I had been looking at what was happening, I knew that heritage grains were coming to the fore again. And I knew that I could use those grains to make something for someone with gut health issues mm. in a really, really, really healthy way. Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of get closer to that. And then my other passion is um, viticulture. I Someday I'd love to be able to own my own vineyard. And I'm really passionate about like natural wine. Uh, one core reason being I was in India for five months one time and my IBS got so bad. I was so constipated from all the white rice. Really? Like I was in a yeah, horrendous yeah. way. Yeah. And we were in Pondicherry uh, in Tamil Nadu. I really want to go to Pondicherry. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Ever since I read Life of Pi. Oh, mate, you love it. It's great. Yeah. So I was there with my best friend and um, Sue. And uh, I was like, Sue, I mean, I am nine months pregnant. I need to do something about this. And I I was like, I I lived in France for a year studying and stuff. And and red wine just always agreed with me. You know what I mean? If I was really bloated or a lot, red wines, glass red wine. So we found we were like in this Muslim area where like there's no alcohol. And I'm like, oh, I just need that one glass of red wine. We found somewhere, had the glass of red wine and it's just like everything came out. Like three weeks of like rice and beans. But it was just like amazing, you know, like, and I feel like, you know, and then, you know, the science behind the phenolics uh, of the grape and everything, you know, all that. Then I started reading about. um, So, you know, it made sense. Well, this is, it makes perfect sense for me because the way you were describing bread earlier on, on the video that we did in the recipe um it does sound you do sound like a sommelier because you're talking about all the different grains where they're grown what the microclimate is who the farmer is in the same way i see someone like ollie on saturday kitchen talk about the different grapes and and the wine that he's chosen to match with whatever and i can imagine you doing something where you match 
the wine to the bread and you have all these yeah. different varieties and of bread cheese. and the cheese yeah. and, and whatever else you want to add to that as well Definitely. i totally see it because it's a complex art totally. that you're doing and it's, yeah yeah so one of the things i'm gonna try and do very very soon in sussex is a toasted cheese sandwich bar oh wow <laughs> so we do cheese wine and bread yeah but we do like a whole load of varieties of bread uh-huh. loads of cheeses and loads of natural wines and the whole point is to kind of go on that journey of like the winemaker the cheese maker and then the bread maker and and just like bring it all together because for me you know I used to work in tv so story is so important you know it's it's a it's a joy in life to kind of storyboard your life in a way totally and I I think the narrative this is why people engage I think so much with stories there's a reason why Ted have a format for their you know videos and, and the lectures and stuff there's a reason why I connected with you so much because your story of how you overcame IBS um how you fell in love with bread how you went on this journey with your business how you've would you call it a pivot now what you've done with Happy Tummy yeah yeah I think that's super correct yeah um, I think, yeah, so I, so uh, when I set up the Happy Tummy Co, um, heritage and ancient grains weren't as accessible as they are today. Um, so that's why I predominantly worked with Tef, because um, Tef was never bastardized. Yeah. So Tef is uh, farmed across 87% of Ethiopia. It's all organic, because if you put fertilizer on that, it would get so tall, it would be unmanageable. Um, and um basically there is 400 and and over there's hundreds of genomes of teff across ethiopia and each region has its own genome that can like you know kind of grow and 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 pollinate more seeds in a, in, a, in that microclimate um, and i got really i was like okay so that's a country i can source ingredient from and, and they're actually planting the way i believe to plant and you know there's so many minerals and vitamins in the teff that i'm using because it's organic, it's ancient, no pesticide, no herbicide, no tractors, it's all skides. Like, this is amazing. So um, I used Tef as the core ingredient because it was ancient and because it was ultimately better for you. And I do believe the reason, like, all my customers felt so good on it, number one, because Tef is a brilliant food, but secondary to that, because it was pumped with all the minerals and vitamins mm. that it are naturally occurring in it it was allowed to be its best self yeah um but now because heritage and ancient grains are now you know being grown here through the conservation um act why not like like for me variety is always key you know i would love like 30 different varieties to be in my bread and it's so funny you know when I remember like selling my bread years ago <clears throat> to someone and he was like, God, there's a lot of ingredients in here. You know, there's 17 ingredients, uh, you know, and, and and he just saw kind of the word, the, the word 17, you know, he was probably thinking stabilizers. Yeah, but then yeah. he saw, oh, it's everything is a yeah. real ingredient yeah, in here. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when I would go to a bakery and they were like, oh, this is just like flour, water and salt. I was like, oh. <laughs> what like and next, you know what I mean? Give me something really good. Like, so I think, yeah, I've just, yeah you know you know I guess I'm growing as the science grows and I'm growing as I'm growing you know the older we get like we aren't at our optimum anymore you know and and I'm feeding myself to continue to be at my optimum Mm. um and yeah that's an exciting place to be actually it's exciting to get older it's brilliant yeah 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 I feel like we've chatted about so many different subjects here and I feel like in for the listener, uh, whoever's listening to this right now is going to be so overwhelmed. It's like, where do I start? Like, I know I need to get better bread. Uh I I know I 
Um, well, I mean, like with, when it comes to organic food, I'm assuming that you're not strictly all organic within, in terms of everything you eat. Or I'd are say you, I am, yeah. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Wow. But I mean, you know, like I feel like it, it's quite accessible through like Riverford boxes and yeah. stuff like that. So um, I get a veg box every week um, uh, and then my staples are all organic, like yeah. my olive oil, my butters, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my milk. Uh, I get my milk locally. My did you cheeses. change overnight to organic, or um, did you? Was it a gradual process for you? I think so. When my mom got cancer the second time, uh-huh. as a family, yeah. we made and we were all incentivized to eat organically. Because okay. at the time, the stuff when my mom was reading, she was like, "You know what? I feel like there's something in this." Mm-hmm. And my mom grew up on a farm. My mom, my grandparents farmed one of the biggest farms in Munster in Ireland. Um, and they were a conventional farm at that point, uh-huh. where there was a lot of fertilizer used, uh-huh. a lot of herbicide, uh-huh. um, and you know. I would say it's not unfair to say, you know, that my mom probably thought, you know, maybe there's a relationship there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all, um, yeah, were incentivized to eat organically. Um, and obviously when you are in London and you eat out at like a fine dining restaurant or not even a fine dining, just like any just regular any restaurant, restaurant yeah. you don't know whether it's organic or non-organic. Yeah. Uh, but I generally, I, I only go to restaurants where I know it's going to be oh, well sourced okay. and stuff like that. Yeah. I take my food very seriously, yeah. but I don't obsess over it. I yeah. just, I'm interested. So, yeah. Like I go to the coffee houses, I know it's good. I go to the restaurants, I know mm. it's good. I know, go to the bakeries, I know it's good. Yeah. And yeah, you research. And I think like, to go to the point that we were talking about earlier, we we definitely we definitely do have the ability to change our food landscape. And yeah. I think because it was ingrained in you from such an early age, yeah. I think it's been a lot more natural progression. 100%. For most people who are starting out perhaps mm-hmm. on a journey where they want to you know, choose more quality ingredients mm-hmm. starting with bread where would you suggest they start um so i think wherever you live in the country or the world uh seek out your local bakery and have a chat with them mm. ask them you know are they using ancient heritage grains um ask them what kind of starter they're using like have a conversation with them and this is not like investigative journalism this is having a conversation with someone who's probably dying to have a conversation with you yeah. like when I was in the bakery I was like please someone come talk to me I mean <laughs> let's break up the monotony of stretching and folding right now um, so I think have conversations with people ask around um, obviously I think any food producer who has a blog and is doing good things is generally going to talk about it there mm. so for example Riverford uh, the founder uh, did a piece recently on um, seed exchange programs. Mm. You know, he's 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 very 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 transparent on the fact that like if we're to get the food that we expect costways, you know, hybrids have to exist. We have to use hybrid seeds and stuff. So I think whereby someone has a blog to communicate to you what they're doing, that's always kind of a safe way of engaging with a brand. Um, I think. You know, in London specifically, if I was to name my favourite bakery, it's definitely E5 Bakehouse. Ben is completely ahead of his time in terms of setting that mill up to mill on site. Mm. Um, I think he's an absolute angel of a man. And if you ever meet him, he is an absolute dude. He's so kind. He's so wonderful. Um, He's so spiritual. He's, yeah, he's a very giving person. I'm definitely going to check out this bread. Yeah, he's great. He's really great. Um, But it's very hard it's very hard to guide people without kind of knowing of course, what yeah. um, the, secondary to that I think engaging or visiting um, a rewilding estate uh-huh. there's lots of rewilding estates uh, being set up across the country uh, Nep Estate in Sussex is brilliant um, there's lots in Suffolk that I know about there's some more up up the country so I think if you google rewilding yeah. Britain loads of estates will come up go visit those people chat with them mm. um, you know you'll see some bison or like a beaver or whatever yeah, and I yeah. think 
understanding how what they're trying to do to kind of rejuvenate our soil um, and make us robust to climate change, global warming is really, really, really interesting. And I'll, I'll link to um, a really cool TED talk actually on the concept of rewilding itself. I forget Amazing. who actually... Uh, did the talk but it was fantastic it's all okay. about essentially letting the nature take care of itself yeah um uh, with minimal intervention and actually seeing what happens and in Amazing. a lot of cases you see thriving horticulture and thriving wildlife as well and i think on the organic points recommending things so i get a river for a box and it costs me 14 pounds 57 uh per week mm-hmm. uh for two people um and that i supplement with organic beans which are cheap um and like herbs or whatever brown rices um bread things like that so i think you know my diet every week will be very varied dependent on what comes in the box Mm -hmm. and then i will you know put like three different beans into that stew Mm. um i love organic salt like a friend of mine he has a a woods in sussex and he shoots you know maybe one venison every couple of months so i have so much venison in my food and i love venison sausages (laughs) So I really like lean meat. Anyway, I love a sausage in a stew. So that's like definitely part of my weekly repertoire, like sausage stew. I'm obsessed with pasta. Uh Absolutely obsessed. And I use a site called Bakery Bits, Uh who import an exquisite Italian um, wheated pasta in, which is very high in fiber. Oh, wow. Um, So I'll probably eat that like once a week. Um, I eat loads of like local fruits. I've you know, got apple trees and stuff like yeah. that. Nice, that's cool. So I eat lots and lots of fruits, but I do supplement, you know, vegetables with lots of seeds, yeah. lots of nuts, lots of store cupboard ingredients mm. that you can bulk buy organically to kind yeah. of bring down the price a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like natural wines, uh, cheeses. Um, yeah, just just for right. I mean, I you love gotta, eating. You've got to experiment. <laughs> yeah. and you can tell you're a foodie. <laughs> just yeah. from your description. Love it. But I think, I think, I think organization is key to everything, right? Yeah. You know, when people come to my bakery class, they get like a massive like list afterwards. I email them, I bombard them with loads of stuff afterwards. They get folders, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing and the key to the, the people being successful around their new practice is organization. Yeah. I'm like, you need to order the flour from the sky. Please don't buy your flour in Waitrose because mm. it's not going to be da la la la. Mm. Um, so I think organization is key. Mm. And I think people, when I say that to people, they're like, oh, but I'm really busy. You know, I've got like this really busy life. Oh, I'm like, oh, okay, fine. You know, say goodbye to like lifelong health. <laughs> I mean, I think you can just not watch the Netflix show tonight <laughs> and make a stew and some bread. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I just like like I did there was I was uh, baking for this retreat recently and this beautiful wonderful woman from Notting Hill came to me two children she's got a high power job her husband's got a high power job and she's like Karen it's just no time it's just no time and I was like I gave her the most basic bread recipe and she's like okay I think I can do that yeah. that's that's cool but to your point everyone's on their own journey they're at a different point in their life fortunately I have something that's easy for the person who is completely time poor mm. but I also have something for the person who wants to enrich themselves um, and I think hopefully that lady gets to the enriched point over the course of many years yeah. um, and for me that's I mean yeah we're all going to get there right mainly because we have to <laughs> but yeah it's an exciting time for food Rupi. it really is and yeah. it's an exciting time for preventative medicine definitely I told you she is awesome, an absolute powerhouse, a proper figure to 
really appreciate being in the wellness industry please follow karen at the and on socials at happy you can find all the links to everything that she's doing on the doctorskitchen.com podcast show notes to summarize our conversation soy health is super important try and get involved in any local community farming uh, shops where you can find good quality bread good quality organic vegetables and just getting into conversations with more and more farmers because they are crucial when it comes to this conversation around uh, optimizing human health and preventing disease i'm definitely going to do some more podcasts on soil quality because i think this is um exceptionally important and something that i need to educate myself on karen clearly has some views about uh, organic farming and only eating organic produce i personally try and eat organic where possible but i'm also mindful of the fact that we cannot consume organic food everywhere up and down the country at this point in time it's just not available and some people just do not have the means for that at this at this um, present time but i am a firm believer in the ability of us to shape our future food landscape Um, and there are lots of uh, really innovative and exciting companies that are popping up um, lots of veg boxes and something i'm planning on doing myself as well at some point in the future look out for that as always don't forget to give this podcast a five-star review join the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes and lifestyle tips you can join the newsletter on the doctorskitchen.com and uh, please send us your comments we'd love to know uh, whether you like this podcast and what other topics you want me to cover i've got loads more in the bag for you and i'll catch you next week take care